gym sessions, and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard-to-remove odors. Clorox Fabric Sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our Fabric Sanitizer products. Search Fabric Sanitizer at Clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed. True crime on A&E with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking true crime every Thursday and Friday on A&E. I've been delaying this um, in hopes uh, that the neighborhood stray cat who normally comes over early in the morning would just get it over with uh, because he's uh, he's a Siamese so the noisiest of cats uh, and I thought uh, he'd just come over early He'd have something to eat, go to sleep, uh, uh, and we could start this. But um, that doesn't appear to be happening. <laughs> so um, uh, I'll just uh, I'll wait. Um, if we're lucky, it'll turn into comic hilarity mid-recording. Comic gold. We'll see. Uh, oh, you'll know. You'll know when he's at the front door. Trust me. Uh, trust me. Life isn't fair, justice is blind and dysfunctional, and these cops aren't smart and dedicated like on television. This is Who Killed Teresa. When I, when I want to get an episode off, sometimes I'll just wing it, as you know. Uh, and I like those ones that are unscripted that, uh, you know, you just, you just kind of go with it. Uh, they have their own, uh, logic. Um, but if I feel something's important, I'll write it down. If I feel it's really important, um, not only will I write it down in English, uh, I'll publish it in English and in French and in all in the interest of time usually run it through like Google Translate and then just check it for obvious bad grammatical errors uh, and clean it up when I think something is really really important um, not only will I write it down I will have it professionally translated into French, which is what I, I've done with this episode. I think the last time I did that uh, was with the Diderot Corbet case, um, the podcast Noir et Blanc. Um, so that's what I'm doing this time. Um, and uh, reading text, it, it always, it's there's an art to it. 
it can be stiff, but we'll give it a shot. Um, a lot of this, well, all of it today is kind of in response to um, something in the book, Wish You Were Here. So today's podcast is about my sister's case, Teresa Lore. Um, and it's been a while since we've discussed that. Um, and it, uh, it requires a bit of background, but I've kind of scripted it in a way that you can kind of follow along. But there are some places where you go, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. And that's, well, you know, it's then buy the book, buy Wish You Were Here, <laughs> you know, and then you'll have the full, you'll have the full lay of the land, uh, I think. But uh, in particular, um, and I'll just, I'll just kind of read the header um, and then explain a bit and then we'll go. Three weeks after she went missing, Lennoxville Police Chief Leo Hamel managed to connect the disappearance of Teresa Lohr with the prior year murder of Louise Cameron. Then came the Journal du Montréal article that quickly put an end to the investigation. And that's traditionally where I'd say, this is who killed Teresa. <laughs> um, uh, what I'll say about that. So, so this is a Journal de Montréal article that sort of came out of the blue that's discussed in the book, but kind of um, vaguely. Uh, and a lot of the book is written a certain way where you, you have to make up your own mind with things and you have to, uh, you know, you have to let your imagination do a lot of work. We, we, we did that on purpose. Uh, the book is written in a certain way in some ways, it's traditional. It, it plays to uh, the traditions of true crime, but you know we walk a fine line in the book, uh, where we also are very critical of true crime, and that's, as I say, that's a difficult walk. Um, and so it could unfold a certain way, but there's certain stops along the way where we deliberately don't go where you think we're going to go. For instance, there isn't a final chapter some nation of this is what I think happened. You're supposed to do that work as a reader. Um, but simply that's what I feel is good writing is that it, it infects you and you think about it and you think about it and you say, why am I still thinking about this thing? Um, so that was a calculus that was put into it. We were not going to spoon feed people things. But I think this part of it needs um needs a spoonful of sugar uh to to explain exactly um what we were getting at with this mysterious article that appeared in a Montreal newspaper midway through well not even mid in the opening chapters of the disappearance of Teresa and uh, so so with that uh, we're, we're <laughs> I don't know why I'm so nervous about this. It's ridiculous. I'm gonna give this a shot. It, I probably because it's, it's a lot of text. It's <laughs> there's a lot here, um, but it will be a good primer, primer for those. I, I think we've talked about the case in two years. Uh, so let's go back to. The Eastern Townships of Quebec in 1978 and talk about what what was up. Leo Hamel 
almost got it right. Standing at the shoulder of the road near Austin, Quebec, a police sniffer dog named Rex at his side, combing the underbrush, Hamel was convinced that the answer to a 19-year-old's disappearance lie here in the wooded interior of the eastern townships, where 18 months earlier, the naked body of 22-year-old Louise Cameron was found in the snow, strangled with a bootlace around her neck. It was late November. Hamel, dressed in a light windbreaker, knew there was still time to recover the body before the heavy snow arrived and delayed any chance of finding Teresa and a chance at solving the case until the spring. It was also an opportunity for some publicity. Hamel was accompanied by a reporter from Photo Police, a sister paper of the Quebec true crime tabloid Allo Police. The reporter was anxious for Hamel to explain exactly why he was here in Austin, 55 kilometers, approximately an hour's drive from the place where Teresa Lohr was last seen in Lennoxville. Hamel's logic was sound. Teresa enjoyed good relationships with friends and family. She was not under any financial stress. After her disappearance, the $1,000 in her bank account remained untouched. A runaway would have surely emptied their bank account. What troubled Hamel the most was that Teresa had a habit of hitchhiking. She had done it the weekend prior to her disappearance to visit friends in Montreal. Hamel then laid out what he called the most plausible hypothesis. Teresa accepted a ride from someone in an automobile, someone, quote, without scruples, a maniac, sexuel, and this person attacked her, killed her, and dumped her body in the woods in the Lennoxville region. In fact, Hamel pointed out that is exactly what had happened to Cameron. Picked up in Sherbrooke, she was raped, murdered, and dumped in a junk heap near Austin. Even more troubling, some hunters had found clothing matching the description of those Teresa was last seen wearing, a woman's shirt and some pants, the day after she went missing, November 4th, 1978, less than 500 meters from that junk heap near Austin. It was for this reason Hamel had traveled 55 kilometers to the area along Chemanguier, bordering Lake Memphremagog. He had pieced this together himself, all within a mere two weeks since Teresa was first reported missing on November 10th, 1978. Hamel told photo police reporter François Daud how he had appealed for assistance from the provincial police, the Sarté du Québec, who were well-resourced to handle such a complicated investigation. The 45-year-old Hamel was a career law enforcement officer, having served as chief in small Quebec towns of Omerville and Sawyerville, 
He had barely nine months under his belt with the nine-man Lennoxville force, and he had never worked a missing persons case. The Sarté du Québec turned down Hamel's request, saying there was no body, and therefore the case was, up to that point, merely a, quote, simple disappearance. Maybe they were right. The Sarté du Québec were the experts with a full squad dedicated to major crimes such as murder. Hamel was just a newly appointed small-town police chief. Still, the snow was coming. A bit about Hamel before we continue. Um, you know, uh, uh, a number of years ago, there was a big TV show done about Teresa's case and the, the, the three murders of Cameron and Dubay and, and, and Teresa um, called W5 in Canada, hour-long program. And, um, you know, I had it up on YouTube. I've since take it, taken it down. Uh, and one day I'll put it back, but not for today uh, because it's very simple. <laughs> Why is anybody going to read a book if they can just go look at it an hour-long video? <laughs> so no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to put it up. But um, you know, the most comments, and maybe I brought this up before, but the most comments um, that that show got were about Hamel, who appears in the show um, crying, um, uh, distraught. Uh, expressing that he wished more could be, have been done. And what amateur sleuths conclude is that Leo is hiding something. But, but more specifically, they, they conclude something really um, personally malicious, uh, that he was somehow involved, all, all from the fact that he's crying what, what appears to them to be crocodile tears. I, I never took it that way. Um, I always thought, um, was he hiding certain things or not expressing certain things? Certainly. But I thought ultimately his behavior revealed that Hamel felt powerless in the face of forces that were well beyond his capabilities as this small town police chief. So Francois Dowd, the the, the, the the reporter, he publishes this article in Photo Police on Saturday, December 2nd, 1978. Uh, so that that is that is less than a month since the the disappearance. This great article that that uh, articulates uh, very well in French. Hamel's uh, theory of uh, a connection between the murder of Alor and Cameron. And, and, and more to the point that the, the answers are over here in this Austin area. Um, now, few English-speaking Quebecers would have read that article, 
uh, Allo police, photo police were highly read in, in French communities, not so much in English. It was certainly not read by my father, who was unilingual. unilingual. And, and I did not become aware of this article until 2017. So that's December 2nd. Uh, before Christmas, the Journal de Montréal comes out and prints a very different article. And the headline reads, in all capital letters, Disparation mystérieuse, une histoire de drogue. And even a person who only speaks English can decipher what that means. But but specifically, um, the translation is tricky. It can be interpreted um, a couple of ways. Uh, it can be interpreted as mysterious disappearance, a history of a drug addict. So it can be very personal, but it can also mean mysterious disappearance, a drug story. And this article begins the Lennoxville police chief, Mr. He Leo Hamel, wonders if the disappearance of 19-year-old Teresa Lor might not be drug-related. And continues with the assertion that Hamel has doubled his efforts in his investigation. And that has led him to search more, particularly in the current world of drugs, which is very active in the Sherbrooke region. Leo Hamel always denied having ever spoken to the Journal de Montréal for this article, um, but the negative effects from such an article would have been immediately apparent to everyone, certainly to my family. Uh, Robert Bulak, the private investigator hired by my father to independently look into Teresa's disappearance, directly refers to this article and a letter to my father over the Christmas holiday of 1978 stating that Hamel called it, quote, pure fabrication. Nevertheless, whatever the, the intent of such an article, the results were predictable and immediate. Apart from uh, a typical year-end review summary of crime in the region, which of course would mention Teresa's case, and, and one French article in February, the, the English paper, the Sherbrooke Record, and the, the, the local French paper, La Tribune, never mentioned Teresa's disappearance again until her body turned up in the snow uh, when it melted uh, in April of 1979. pondered the significance of the uh, Journal de Montréal's Histoire des Drogues article. 
during the five and a half months that she was missing, it is the only time, the only time, the Journal de Montreal covered the case. There are no lead-up articles in, in, in the month of November 1978 that would introduce readers to the affair, that a young girl had gone missing, etc., etc. There are no follow-up articles after that one publication on December 20th, 1978. So the, uh, the, the result was immediate. Uh, readers would have received the message that if the matter was drug-related, then it was a personal affair, something to be resolved by the family, nothing that needed community involvement. Uh, and if that was the message, then you have to ask yourself, what exactly was the intention of printing such an article um, out of the blue? Now, back in the day, the offices of Allo Police, Photo Police, were located directly across the street from the Sarté du Québec's Montreal main headquarters on Rue Parthenay. And uh, it was said, uh, Lore from that time says that that if if the tabloid, you know, got got out of line and ran a story that diverged from the SQ narrative that they wanted published. An, an officer could simply walk across the street to their offices and, and tell them they get it right next time, huh? And <laughs> it, 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 notoriously, they were, they, uh, they did this. Uh, it, it's well known that the, the two organizations sort of walked hand in hand, although with the an, an, an easy separation, uh, journalistic separation. Nevertheless, uh, for the most part, for for a period, and to this day, the cops are the heroes, right? Um, now, um, in 1978, at the same, so at the time in this area, the offices of the Journal de Montréal, they're, they're not located across the street. They're located in the north end of Montreal. Uh, um, near uh, Ahansik. Um, uh, today they're located near the Sertes de Quebec, but at that time they were lo located near Ahansik, about about a 30-minute drive from the Sertes de Quebec headquarters. Uh, so uh, a little further away than the LO police headquarters, my point being, you, you would have really, really <laughs> wanted that paper to get the story right, right? Get it right. Um, so, and I'll stop pussyfooting around and I'll, I'll, I'll just get to my point. Um, the Journal de Montréal had no reason to publish the Histoire des Drogues article. Someone planted that story to discredit a missing person. And my guess is that someone was the Sarté du Québec. 
Um, the journal in that era was a tabloid, just like Allo Police. It still is to this day. Um, and unlike the name suggests, it w was widely read off the island of Montreal. Um, a, a story like Histoire de, de, de Drogue in a newspaper as powerful as the Journal du Montréal had, uh, had the power to influence matters. In short, it had the ability to kill an investigation. And that's exactly what it did. If, if you, you have pondered in the past why I've been a little hard on the Journal de Montréal, this is why. This is why I've hammered in the past on uh, Archambault Books, the publisher, uh, on Quebecor, which uh, owns the Journal de Montréal, on Pierre Carl Pelido, who specifically owns Quebecor. Um, this is why. And um, uh, uh, they didn't plant. They didn't plant the article. I don't believe, but they were complicit in the, the affair, which killed the investigation into my sister's murder, flat. And I'll, I'll go even further for the moment with my tinfoil hat theory. Um, when we were looking for a French publisher um, for uh, Wish You Were Here, uh, one of the first organizations that showed initial interest in the project was L'Edition Homme a French publishing house owned by Quebecor. Uh, so we gave them a advanced copy and uh, they were the first to immediately, immediately say they had no interest in publishing it. <laughs> Which of course it goes into great detail about this article. Um, hey, again, I'll take off my tinfoil hat and say uh, maybe they just hated the book. Okay, that's fine. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Even so, why, why, attempt, um, why attempt to tamper in the investigation of a missing girl uh, is, would be my next question, if I'm you listening to this, uh, of what consequence could that be to one of the most powerful police agencies in North America? Uh, wh whether he gave the interview or not, what if Leo Hamel was right? Uh, and, and by the way, if you think that Hamel's um, alleged assessment uh, 
uh, of the whole situation is harsh. Uh, the same article um, quotes my mother as saying at the time uh, that she believed that her daughter is buried in an unknown place. And I, <laughs> I never heard my mom say that. Uh, in 1979, 78, she wouldn't have told me that, but apparently that's what she said. But back to Hamel. What, what if Hamel was right? What if this was drug-related? What if this was a drug story, but not in the smear-the-victim manner that the article implies? And uh, I think in order to understand that, you need to consider what a former law enforcement officer meant when he told me that the Eastern townships in that era were wide open. Stated plainly, the, the, the lines were blurred uh, between cops and robbers, uh, law enforcement and uh, bad guys. Uh, drugs, as the article uh, states correctly, were prevalent. Uh, there was marijuana and, and hash, uh, acid uh, labs in the bushes and, and cocaine. There was all of that. Um, and in Lenoxville, in the small town, which was then a small town of Lenoxville, um, local drug gangs dealt not only at Champlain College and Bishop's University, but at the local high school, Alexander Galt. And if you don't believe that, then I would suggest to you that you were being blindly naive. Uh, just to kind of explain the drug culture back then, low-level gang members would handle the street operation, but everyone would have, would have, you know, be making money off the system. Cops uh, would uh, take a cut and then turn a blind eye to dealers, other criminal activities that weren't overtly egregious at first. And again, if you, if you think it's... It, it's a bridge too far to suggest that cops would be in on this. I, again, uh, uh, well, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So where there's drugs, there's prostitution. So now what if a low level criminal gets, gets a little too heated around the prostitutes, the girls? What if he beats her? What if he, what if he kills her? What of a girl like 18-year-old Carol Fecto, who ran with local Sherbrooke drug dealers and ended up gang-raped, shot, and dumped in the woods in East Hereford, near the United States border, in the summer of 1978? No one even blinked when Fecto's murder was unsolved when unsolved, is unsolved to this day. Because Carol Fecteau was just collateral damage. She was a cost of doing business in the drug trade. And by business, I mean big business for everyone. The police never thoroughly investigated the death of Carol Fecto because they couldn't. Because of the moment they arrest the drug dealers responsible, those dealers would probably point a finger back at the police and say they were in on it, taking a cut of drug money. 
In fact, this is very similar to what happened in the matter of Fernand Laplante, who we've spoken about before. Police knew he didn't murder associates of Carol Facteau, the police informant Raymond Grimard and his girlfriend Manon Bergeron. And it didn't matter. Everyone needed a fall guy, the criminals and the police. Someone who, who wouldn't be believed uh, if he tried to break up the system that they put in place, wouldn't be believed in court as he wasn't. So they, they choose this stooge, La Plante, and uh, they, they coerce his, his accomplice, John, uh, Johnny Charlin, himself a member at that time of the Jetain biker gang, to testify against him. Um, and just in the words of La Plante's attorney, uh, Jean-Pierre Rancourt, who said to me, it was Jean Charlin and another guy who killed Grimard and Bergeron. Not La Plante. Now, stay with me here. Just take this one step further. What if you got a guy, right? Another guy who loses all control and goes rogue. He's, he's no longer just killing fellow gang members. He's now plucking innocent women and girls off the streets, not fellow drug associates. Now it's regular members of the community. That's going too far. But that too is collateral damage. It's a cost of doing business. You don't risk investigating the possibility that Teresa, Laura, and Louise Camerat were linked to a serial killer because the suspect is someone who is part of your operation. He's a guy that if you arrest him for murder, he will point the finger at his drug partners and law enforcement and confess that they were all in on an elaborate operation to make everyone money. And now that operation has gone terribly, tragically wrong. If you think I'm painting a far-fetched conspiracy theory, let me provide you a stark example from where I live. There's a county here in North Carolina that is one of the poorest, if not the poorest, in the state. I won't name places or names. I don't want to attract attention. We're in my home now. This is where I live. 
It's known by some as Little Miami because the cocaine that traffics there is cheap and pure. In order to operate anywhere in the drug trade, you need the involvement of law enforcement for protection. As the editor of a local paper put it, it comes down to big business and my people are expendable. The county sheriff there had been in office for four consecutive terms through the 1980s and 1990s. It was alleged he received $300 in protection money for every ounce of cocaine that was sold there. In 1986, his county deputy's son shot and killed a local man in the back in a routine traffic stop. That sheriff was cleared of any wrongdoing. Today, that deputy is the director of a major state law enforcement agency. The father retired in 1993 after serving over four decades in state police agencies. The next sheriff wasn't any better because the corruption is systemic and institutionalized. That sheriff was sentenced to six years in a federal prison for kidnapping, money laundering, and the burning of houses during drug raids, among other things. A defense lawyer from the area who was scared out of his wits summed it up this way. He thought the sheriff was the problem, that he had drug dealers on his payroll. But that was the tip of the iceberg, and I mean iceberg. What I'm leaving out of this story is that this county is in the throes of an epidemic of missing and murdered women. The neglected cases involve dozens of Native and other marginalized women who have gone missing or been murdered in the county since 1998 actually long prior to 1998, but who's counting, right? Certainly not the police. Over the years, North Carolina officials, right up to the governor's office, have been accused of ignoring the crisis. Nothing ever changes. As the newspaper editor explained, drugs are big business and people are expendable. This, this is what I believe. I believe a Quebec serial offender named Luc Grégoire is responsible for a series of murders, including my sister's murder, in the eastern townships of Quebec from 1977 and 1978. Louise Cameron near Austin, Hélène Monast in Chambly, Denise Bazinet in Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu, Manon Toubet near North Hatley, and Theresa Lore in Compton. Gregoire would later be convicted of the brutal Calgary 1993 murder of 22-year-old Lelani Silva and is suspected of several other murders in that city. As one criminologist who profiled Gregoire put it to me, it is statistically improbable that a sexual predator like Gregoire didn't commit these murders. So how did someone like Luc Grégoire slip through the cracks of the Quebec justice system? 
I suspect that initially he would have flown under the radar. Police likely didn't suspect him in the Chambly and Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu murders. Those towns are halfway between Sherbrooke and Montreal. Publicly, they never admitted the death of Manon Dubay was a murder at all. Um, but when, when Leo Hamel showed up uh, in a roadside field in the Magog region, searching for my sister in the same area where Louise Cameron had been dumped, that must have set off some alarm bells. And to, uh, to just kind of stitch up something uh, about the Dubai case never being cataloged as a murder. Uh, don't forget um, that, uh, I've talked about this a lot, uh, the coroner's office would have been completely complicit in these matters. Uh, coroner's offices back then were typically stooges and puppets uh, to police forces. We talked about this in the uh, Lafayre Patinot episode that goes into the history of the coroner's office in Quebec and, and certainly um, uh, the, the author uh, Jean-Claude Bernheim when I, when I interviewed him and asked him specifically the question, is it possible for a coroner to lie in the interest of the police? His response was, quote, fully. Uh, the, 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 the coroner at that time in, in the Eastern Townships region was a guy named Jean-Pierre uh, Rivard, who was, was a well-known stooge uh, to police interests. And I suspect that, that Luc Gregoire was one of those low-level criminals in the late 1970s who was caught up uh, in one form or another with petty crimes and in the township's drug trade. His, his criminal record from the era points to this. Um, Gregoire may have even been the person who murdered Carol Fecto and participated, the, uh, some other guy, the some other guy participated in the assassinations of police informant Raymond Grimard and his girlfriend Manon Bergeron. And if the Grimard gang, and it was a gang heavily involved in the drug trade in the downtown Sherbrooke, Wellington and King Corridor, if they, uh, they were providing kickbacks to the police, then, then Gregoire could spell danger for the entire outfit, particularly when he uh, might have gotten out of hand and allegedly started murdering innocent members of the community who were just walking home from school or out buying a liter of milk. There are even suspicions that Luke Gregoire was related to Luke and Normand Gregoire, two career Sarté de Québec investigators from the area, one of whom, Normand, actually participated in the processing of the crime scene of my sister Teresa. So you wouldn't want to risk that kind of exposure. 
So when Lennoxville Police Chief Leo Hamel starting getting too close to what might have been the, the truth, you wouldn't ask questions about specifics. You wouldn't want to know the details. Just that something was going down in Sherbrooke, uh, in that area, to jeopardize police operations, and you needed an article planted that would quash any tremors about a serial killer, uh, something that would embarrass the local police chief and discredit the missing girl. So with that issue taken care of, you still got the problem of what to do with Luke Gregoire. Luckily, by 1979, he was with the armed forces. He was shipped overseas to Germany. But by 1980, he was back in Sherbrooke. And he had now raped a girl in a downtown parking garage named Nicole Couture. So now what? This is now a situation that is, again, on the brink of getting way out of control. So again, you take matters into your own hands. When Luke gets out of jail, you offer him a one-way ticket to Alberta, and you tell him never to show his face again in the Eastern Townships. And as far as we know, Luke Gregoire never did. How big a threat was Luc Gregoire potentially to the Sûreté du Québec? Big enough that when I began sniffing around in the early 2000s and by mid-decade had begun to focus on Gregoire as a potential suspect, I believe uh, the Sûreté du Québec took steps to nullify the situation. In 2002, the Sûreté du Québec created their, their first behavioral analysis division with a focus on solving cold cases. We've been through this, um, but, but a little more meat on the bone. They sent agents Marc Lapine and Eric Latour to Quantico, Virginia, to study behavioral profiling with the FBI. Latour eventually became head of the division, and Lepin was anointed the SQ's first geographic profile. Few will, will miss the irony here that one of, the, one of the challenges Patricia Pearson and I always faced with the SQ was getting them to understand that the technique of geographic profiling pioneered by Kim Rosmo actually existed. 
over the, over the years, I, I have worked with both uh, Lepin and Latour. Both have at one time or the other been my SQ liaisons for my sister's case. Initially, both investigators were very cooperative. Latour was especially very active in pursuing Luc Gregoire as a, as a suspect. He flew to Calgary and met with investigators. Uh, he had uh, Gregoire polygraphed. He had an informant placed in Gregoire's cell. But in short order, the, the eager Latour was replaced with a seasoned veteran who had cut his teeth on Project Wolverine, the task force established to intervene in the Quebec biker war. And when that happened, immediately the flow of Gregoire information for me stopped. In fact, the new guy told me they no longer considered Gregoire as a suspect. Um, this, this hardliner did once offer me a very good piece of advice, something that I now consider quite unsettling, he told me. Mr. Alor, as an SQ officer, I advise you to leave this matter behind you. But as a parent, if it were me in your situation, I would be doing exactly the same thing. One of the last things Eric Latour told me uh, was that he had wanted to use a photo of Luke Gregoire alongside a series of other photos of offenders uh, to see if any surviving victims uh, of sexual assault from that era might ID him as their attacker. But, you know, darn, Latour just couldn't find a photo of Gregoire from that era. And my 2008 self um, accepted this as a believable answer. But my 2020 self says that um, this was bullshit. I, as a, as a civilian living in the United States, made a request to the Calgary police for an early mugshot of Gregoire just last week. And within 48 hours, I had a response. Did I want the one from 1993, from the Lanny Silva case, or did I want the ones from 1985, the arrests in Saanich and Edmonton, Alberta? Over the years, I have made several visits to that site on Chemin Guillère. Now it's called the Chemin du Val, where Louis Cameron's body was found, where Leo Hamel stood with Rex, hoping to find a clue, a connection, something. Each time I invite the Sarté du Québec to participate and join me. And um, each time they refuse. Part of me uh, thinks uh, they don't want to lend uh, credibility to a theory that the murders of Cameron and my sister Teresa are, are, are connected. 
And, and over those years, um, myself and some very helpful folks who have joined me have recovered uh, numerous personal items, pieces of women's clothing, women's jewelry, a purse from that forest. The Sertate Quebec refused to process the items. They refused to even look at photos of the items. Uh, and that's a good place to say, uh, if you go to the website, uh, theresalore.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E.com for this episode, some good photos uh, this time around, including the um, December 2nd, 78 uh, photo police article in its entirety, the Histoire des Drogues, a Journal de Montréal article, uh, the letter from Robert Bulak um, sent to my father in which he says that uh, Leo Hamel says the story uh, in the Journal de Montréal is pure fabrication. Um, but uh, a photo of Luke Gregoire, if you want to finally see what he looks like, um, and photos of these evidences uh, recovered. Necklace, blouse, comb, uh, all items that Sarté de Québec refuses to even believe exist. And where are they now? Where are those pioneer agents with such a bright future in Quebec, behavioral profiling and murder investigations? Mark Lepin was demoted and thrown out of the cold case unit for reasons unknown. Eric Latour has bounced around a series of SQ podunk outposts, spent a year in Joliet, a population of 19,000, best known for housing a women's prison. Spent five months uh, currently in Saint-Land-de-Laurentides, population of 17,000. His uh, career trajectory, apparently in opposition to small-town police chief Hamels back in the day. He's actually going down the ladder. When I interviewed Latour in 2019 for the book, Wish You Were Here, after 10 years of losing contact with him, his first question to me was, how did you get my number? This just makes me laugh. Uh, it's like Eric. I've been doing this for twenty years. You think I can't? It was. It was pretty easy. He's on LinkedIn. <laughs> you know, with all his accomplishments, you know, all the the brass movements up the uh, the up the law enforcement ladders, right? Chief to chief, you're right there, Eric. How did I get your number? Um, when I asked him to verify um, some information about my sister's case um, and Luke Gregoire, his, his, his response to me was very familiar. It was virtually the same response. Rock Goudreau, who was the original Certe de Quebec investigating officer into my sister's death, gave to my brother when Andre, my brother Andre, reinvestigated matters in the 1990s. Both men said the same thing. They both said, 
I may not remember anything. <laughs> uh, the collective amnesia is astounding. None of these guys keep notebooks. <laughs> They're law enforcement investigators. Uh, <coughs> nevertheless, if... <coughs> Excuse me, I got a tickle. Uh, if you want to get rid of a problem, you toss it away from the action. That has always been the SQ way. From reporting... Um, uh, in the Quebec Daily La Presse, um, one of Quebec's finest French newspapers, we know of the existence of what are called red files within the Sarté du Québec. These are usually hush-hush termination agreements uh, with the most senior members of staff, um, ultra-confidential documents stored in a vault at the top of the agency's uh, other main headquarters in, in Quebec City, within driving distance of the uh, Assemblée Nationale, which is the highest legislative body in the province of Quebec. This is where the bodies are buried. And, and conveniently, there's, there's a, a, a small shredder inside the small bathroom located next to an industrial shredder next to a vault on that floor at the SQ headquarters. Moving down the water John is drifting out of sight It's only at the turning point That you find out how you fight in the final paragraph of Francois Daud's photo police article from December 2nd, 1978, the reporter sent an ominous warning to the Sarté du Québec and the people of Quebec. If Theresa Allure's disappearance one day results in the discovery of her corpse, it is to be expected that the police will then have a lot to do to drag him by the collar and shake hands with the maniac responsible. Moreover, it is a fact that the murders of young girls appear among the most difficult crimes to solve, since the assassins are often people who do not stick out, having a regular job, and not having been involved in any prior judicial process. It should be noted that the weather is a prime factor in this affair, because the next snows could delay the discovery and the solution. Leo Hamel got it right. He got it right. Special thanks to my friend Micheline for doing the French translation.
translation today. If you like the podcast, uh, you can follow us on social media. Uh, we're on Twitter uh, at Teresa Lohr, at T H E R E S A A L L O R E. That is the Twitter uh, handle for the podcast. I am personally at Justice Guy, at J U S T U S G U Y. There's a Facebook page. Uh, for the podcast, it's called uh, "Who Killed the Teresa?" The podcast. Um, there's a Facebook page for the book "Wish You Were Here," simply called "Wish You Were Here." Uh, there's an Instagram account that uh, I don't use as much. I don't quite. I don't quite get Instagram. Uh, but then you know what? I'm getting old. <laughs> um, uh, of course, the website TeresaLore.com, a uh, YouTube channel. Just search. Teresa Allure. It may be under my name, John Allure. I'm not sure. But visual stuff. There's an interview I just posted um, with Patricia Pearson and I for Wish You Were Here from uh, Shelf Life Books in Calgary. Um, there is uh, recently I I, um, I jettisoned, uh, gave a lifeboat um, to the 40 episodes um, from the first season of Teresa Allure. 40? I did 40 episodes? out of my fucking mind um uh my soundcloud uh, account is going away so i had to download all those i'm i'm in the process of deciding what to do with those they're all private right now um and whether to release them in the new year uh or to wait uh into the spring for the uh u.s and uk publication of wish you were here maybe do it like that uh, or maybe never release them um i don't know i'm not i'm not a lot of people are embarrassed about like their initial podcasts i'm not i really like them uh i listened to the first one it, it is yeah it's not it is so raw i mean it's just you know the mic turns on and 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 there you go and there's you know there's no music uh, uh and i'm a big one for uh verite in uh in podcasting to to avoid the overproduction um there there's certain certain times where it's gotten gotten a little flamboyant i think the series on the flq was probably the most uh arty i got uh, with them, um, <clears throat> with all kinds of oral sculptures and stuff. But in, in general, I, I I do like to keep it pretty clean um, and and true to just a, a storytelling narrative. Um, for me, that's what works best. Uh, but I don't know. I'm still thinking about what to do with those 40 episodes, I guess is what I'm saying. And the last thing I'll say is, uh, if you like it... Uh, or you can listen to the other episodes on, uh, I don't know, my platform is Spreaker, but um, I mean, you can listen to it on the website, obviously, but um, the main platforms are Spotify, iTunes. iTunes seems to be the um, the platform for reviews uh, and forcing you to give it a great review. I'm suspicious of any podcast who has a straight up five star consistencies of reviews that's obviously you know moms dads and girlfriends weighing in or some kind of quid pro quo arrangement just give it what you i'm very what i'm saying is i'm very happy with my 4.1 or 3.9 um 
it's just fine. Uh, and if you hate it, oh, what the hell? Say you hate it. I don't, it's fine. Uh, <clears throat> I can't be all things for all people. So hate on, my Cheerios. Hate on. Um, that's it. I'm empty. I'm going to sign off. This has been Who Killed Teresa? I'm your host, John Allure. Have yourselves a great, great day.
Gym sessions and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard-to-remove odors. Clorox Fabric Sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our Fabric Sanitizer products. Search Fabric Sanitizer at Clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed. Gym sessions and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard-to-remove odors. Clorox Fabric Sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our Fabric Sanitizer products. Search Fabric Sanitizer at Clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed.